0: And I still believe we have a window of time. And in a way, this pandemic has proved it by the speed with which nature can come back if we give her a chance. So Roots & Shoots' main message is, every single one of us, every one of us on this planet makes some impact every day.
1: Welcome to Episode 6 of What Comes After, What Comes Next, my podcast about the big ideas about how we tackle the climate crisis and renew our economies in a post-pandemic world. My name is James Shaw and I'm New Zealand's Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. This week I'm delighted to be talking to the legendary primatologist and conservationist Dr. Jane Goodall. Most of you will know Jane from the groundbreaking research she did in the Gombe Stream National Park in Tanzania. Through her work and that of the Jane Goodall Institute, Jane has seen firsthand the numerous global crises that we face, such as climate change, environmental degradation, and poverty. Before the pandemic, Jane was traveling more than 300 days every year, talking to people in countries all over the world about the difference they can make to the world around them. It was a real privilege to talk to Jane from her home in the UK. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did and take hope from the connections that Jane draws between the environment and people's well-being. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also give us a rating or review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now, here's my conversation With Jane Goodall. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to start, if I may, with uh, something that you said in a recent National Geographic documentary about you, where you talked about how if you want to change uh, someone's mind, you said it's no good arguing, you've got to reach the heart. Uh, And I would imagine that you've got quite a lot of experience in that domain um, over, over time. We're in a, a world now, obviously, in New Zealand, all around the world where people are going to be losing their jobs and worried about having a roof over their head and needing to feed the kids and all of that kind of thing. And it, and it, it seems a little counterintuitive to try and go via someone's heart at a moment like this to get them to think about the long term. How, how do you How do you think in these circumstances that we find ourselves in we can do that?
0: Well, you know obviously these are new circumstances, and one has to rethink everything. but I think one thing one thing it has shown us is that if countries do act together and they did this because of the virus, not because of anything else, but that it did change the the um the climate and did it did change the emissions. And it did mean that people in cities who perhaps never breathed clean air before breathed clean air and looked up at the night sky and saw stars shining bright instead of through a haze of pollution or maybe not even seen them at all. And all those people, whether they've got jobs or not, um, they don't want to go back to that, and yet they want jobs. So I think the only answer has to be that creating a new green economy and creating new green jobs so that all these people who've lost their old polluting jobs can be given new jobs. Well, I'm not an economist, and, you know, it's not my role to think of this, but I do know that if um, if governments really get behind clean, green energy, it would create many, many jobs, and that that could be one solution.
1: Do you admit when when you actually said that originally, What what what's the best example that you've seen of converting someone from, you know, being resistant or a skeptic uh, to being on board through not just a kind of rational argument, but through that sense of changing, changing the heart. Where have you seen that, the, that sort of most most effectively?
0: Well, I saw it once very effectively and with quite a number of people when I began the long battle to get chimpanzees out of medical research in these five foot by five foot cages. So whereas most of the animal rights people were going in and pointing fingers and saying, this is cruel, and, and of course the, the research people were not going to listen to them. And um, I, did, I did it differently. I went in, I sat down with them, and I talked about the Gombe chimpanzees. I showed video of how they were, how they were the young ones playing and the adults resting in the sun and grooming each other. And um, so it it made a difference. And people have said to me afterwards, we realized that what we were doing and how we were doing it was wrong.
1: I'm trying to find, uh, one of the things I think that happens a lot in in the climate movement uh, is we talk a lot about emissions carbon dioxide methane um, uh, solar panels wind turbines it's a very technical conversation and it's my sense is difficult to f- find the the kind of the emotive equivalent uh, of a family of chimpanzees
0: I think I think in this situation, we need to go to the beauty and the spiritual value of a forest and explain to people and show them photographs uh, of forests being clear-cut and, you know, the, the uh, degradation of the land once the forest has gone. And really emphasize that, that yes, all these technical things are, are fine and searching for new ways of clean, green energy, renewable energy, but right now, we have an opportunity by saving the existing forests, which are still being destroyed at the rate of a football pitch a minute or something, um, and planting trees. Now, that's that's something, again, if governments get behind massive uh, reforestation and forest protection, that, again, will create jobs. And it's not me to say where the money comes from for all these things, but in the, in the long run, I mean, like I was reading a great long thing about the amount of money that is saved by, by a city, by urban, urban uh, greening, bringing trees into the city, and uh, the benefit that those trees bring, both um, health-wise, mental and physical, um, cleaning the air, providing shade, uh, mitigating the effect of of the the heating uh, globe, and also the tree roots, which help to um, stabilize the soil and prevent the the damage of flooding. So there's there's all kinds of new ways of thinking of things, and I'm only just beginning to really get behind what this new world could be like, but I think we all want it.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, there is a debate happening here in Aotearoa New Zealand at the moment about afforestation, uh, so uh, particularly forestry for carbon sequestration, um, and and actually we're getting quite a lot of resistance from rural communities where they are seeing some traditional farms like sheep and beef farms and so on get bought up and wholesale converted into forestry in order to sequester carbon. Uh, And that's causing a bit of resistance in in some of those rural communities. And so um, they're they're less, less worried about permanent indigenous forestry, but we we do have a lot of uh, rotation pine forestry, uh, which which is going in because it's very fast growing uh, and and sequesters carbon at, at at, you know, a huge rate. And and so I don't think we've quite managed to get to a consensus yet about how we, you know, how we do grow the forestry estate in a way that not just sequesters carbon, but actually also maintains and nurtures those uh, communities that live off the land at the moment.
0: Well, you see, that, that leads into a whole other discussion about the terrible environmental impact of intensive animal agriculture. And, you know, that leads you into a whole different... All these things are interconnected. That's the fascinating thing. That's what I learned in the rainforest. And so you you solve one problem and you create another. So you've got to be aware before you start down one path of where that might lead and work out how I'm going to mitigate that. So, again, it's trying to persuade people that this intensive animal farming really does harm the environment. And I know I learned while I was in New Zealand about the effect on the, on the ocean, the spill off from the cattle farming, um, <clears throat> the dairy farming and so on. So again, you know, it's not my job, but, but but it is it is something to bring into the discussion. It's something that makes sense. So how do you get those farmers to realize that actually they can switch and have a more sustainable future if they switch to protecting uh, the forests and renewing the forests rather than going on with their uh, their large-scale animal farming. The small-scale animal farms are different. Uh, You know, the small-scale family farm is very different from this large area of Monocultured animals, if you like.
1: Well, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, we we do have a, uh, uh, I guess because of the central role that agriculture plays in New Zealand, uh, any uh, change, uh, comes with a great deal of heat. <laughs> Um, and as you say, and and for and against, like it it is the most fascinating interconnected system, where you yes you pull one thing and something else happens somewhere else. And uh, I I think my sense, and I I'd be interested to know what you see around the world if there are parallels around the world that we could draw on, where there is a a sort of a, a broader vision for how we want to you know in any given country how we want to work with the land uh, and you know get food and sustenance from it as well as to have those local communities and to restore the environment and all of all of those good things are you seeing that anywhere
0: well uh- Not really in whole countries, but it's in, you know, individual projects which are spreading and spreading, like permaculture. Permaculture is getting bigger and bigger across Africa, and more and more people, once they understand how to work with the land, how actually it can produce more food than a monoculture and be more sustainable and more resilient to climate change, for one, because you've got your different kinds of crops. So, I don't know that there's one country that Costa Rica's done super well with restoring its forest, um, but then it didn't have the big problem of intensive animal farming. So I don't know that there's one country I can pick on. There are countries that are doing fantastic jobs in um, reduction of emissions, like Saudi Arabia, oddly enough. They're way ahead with solar and wind.
1: No one has ever said to me, Saudi Arabia is doing fantastically at reducing emissions?
0: Well, it it actually apparently is. And there was a conference the other day, and unfortunately I didn't hear the Saudi minister because they cut me off after my bit. But uh, everybody who listened to him said they're doing such an amazing job environmentally in Saudi Arabia. So maybe you can look it up.
1: New Zealand went through 28 days of near total lockdown. And and I know in some other countries it's been longer um, and we had a few weeks either side where we were in partial lockdown, but but we went through a month where, which was really tough on some people. You know, there are a lot of people who obviously lost their jobs uh, or, um, you know, in, in particularly low-income households where the quality of the house that they're confined to is poor um, but also a lot of people in the middle class as you were saying earlier noticed increase in bird life they inc- noticed increased air quality uh, they quite enjoyed spending time with their kids um, their pets got very used to having them around you know so there were there were a lot you know people learned how to bake bread Um, there was a bit of a sourdough thing going on. So there was this... Yeah, you know, and and, and a lot of people reported, you could see it happening in social media, talking about actually that sort of enforced moment where we all just had to stop uh, and take stock and spend time with each other. Actually had some benefits to it and of course if you think about the economy it was tremendously damaging we're running up tens of billions of dollars of debt to get us through uh you know as i said lots of people have lost their jobs um and so the solution to that seems to be to turn on the tap again you know it's like you might have saved a lot of money because you were locked in in your house at home now please go out and spend it right uh and I have to say I have mixed feelings about that. You know, on on the one hand, you know, there is that um need to provide for people, you know, and, and to be able to say okay, we need to do what we can to get people back into work and to make sure that not every business in the country falls over and so on at the same time. That's just the same treadmill that we were on before.
0: Yeah. Unsustainable. I yes. think we've proved that the way we were living was is absolutely unsustainable. We're going to need a lot of very creative minds and people who can persuade and leaders and so on uh, to make that shift. And But if we don't make that shift, we're basically doomed in the long run. Well, we? you,
1: said, you said something the other day, if we don't do things differently, we're finished. There was in an online interview mm-hmm. that you did recently. What, what did you mean by that?
0: Well, because it's, it's quite clear. If we go back to business as usual and the climate goes on increasing by these various degrees, all the scientific evidence points to creating a world where human life will no longer be sustainable.
1: So what are you seeing? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people talking about things like a Green New Deal, uh, the idea that we would do what we did after the Great Depression um, and essentially do make-work programs and so on, but ones that are employed in nature and restorative work and so on. What are you seeing in the countries that you work in or that your foundation works in about how that recovery can work when it's working well?
0: Well, I, I don't have any examples of of you know, we haven't got there yet. We haven't we haven't started trying to. As far as I know, I mean, individual people have ideas as to how to restart a different kind of economy, but I don't. I haven't heard of a country that's managed to do that. So I can't answer that one. I'm not
1: a politician. <laughs> well, the, the reason I ask, of course, is because. Uh, your well, you have a number of organisations. Uh, you've got the Jane Goodall Foundation. You've also got Roots and Shoots, um,
0: which is part of GGI. Yes.
1: It's
0: a program,
1: yeah, but oriented toward more towards young people and and their communities. And and so uh, I suspect that you see more of what's going on in the world than I do. Uh, you know, because I tend to focus very much on the domestic uh, situation. Um, I'm curious about what messages you're getting back from the foundation and from the young people in Roots and Shoots.
0: Okay. Well, you know, what's very clear to me, because I've been prowling this planet for an awful long time, um, much, much longer than you, never mind our jobs. I've lived longer than you have, and I lived through World War II. And that, again, was something which it, it was a tough time to live through and the future was not certain. Uh, but we came through it. We've, we've managed to come through other things. So what I've noticed is the awareness of the harm that we're inflicting on the planet has grown exponentially. It's, it's you know, people are understanding. Many people Uh, have lost hope because they feel helpless. They read all the news, they read the doom and gloom, they think, well, there's nothing I can do. This is why I began Roots & Shoots, because I met all these young people, high school, university, who were angry or depressed or just mostly apathetic and care because we've compromised their future, they said, and there's nothing they can do. So we have, we've been actually stealing the future of future stealing future generations' livelihoods. Whatever, well, you know what I'm trying to say. But but was it true that there was nothing they could do about it? No, I thought, no, we've got a window of time. And I still believe we have a window of time, and in a way this pandemic has proved it, by the speed with which nature can come back if we give her a chance. So Roots & Shoots is, Main message is every single one of us, every one of us, on this planet makes some impact every day. And unless we're living in absolute poverty, we have a choice as to the kind of impact we make. What what choices we make each day? What do we buy? How was it made? Did it harm the environment? Lead to cruelty to animals? Is it cheap because of child slave labor or uh, inappropriate wages for the people who made it? And And so in these ways, each single one of us can make a difference. And then every group of Roots and Shoots, which is growing in New Zealand, by the way, um, they choose three projects. We don't dictate. uh, They choose one to help people, one to help animals, and one to help the environment because of this interrelatedness. And what started with 12 high school students in Tanzania is now in 68 countries, members in kindergarten, university, everything in between, even some people, you know, adults. And we've also got, it began in 91. So we've got this great, uh, huge amount of people who've been through the program and somehow they retain the values that that they acquired in the program. We try to bring people together, it's usually virtual, but once a year we try to bring leaders, youth leaders together to discuss their ideas. And um, they're learning because we bring them from different countries. But far more important than a person's nationality, language, color of their skin, religion, um, culture, is the fact that we're all human beings. Our blood's the same. If we fall and bleed, it's the same. And uh, when we laugh, that lovely feeling when you laugh, we all share it. And our tears, our sorrow, our grief, our emotions—we share them with animals too. And so it, it's um, you know we minister of environment in Tanzania was in roots and shoots as a child, and he had the strength to stand up against uh, a president who who. Um, Is less concerned about the environment, like some other presidents I can mention, than uh, about his own. Yeah. Anyway, so Roots and Toots is creating young people who discuss problems. They're not afraid to face up to them, but then they they sit and discuss the older ones, and then it's action. It's rolling up your sleeves and getting out there and actually planting trees and actually lobbying and actually, you know, but totally nonviolent, absolutely nonviolent, apolitical, a-religious, And it's wonderful. Like in Tanzania, we have we have Muslims and Christians, and they all work together. They
1: work as one. You sound hopeful.
0: <clears throat> I'm hopeful if we get together and we can do it i've i've found the kids in Tanzania at the end of their meetings we bring them together to share ideas and i found that they were saying together we can meaning we can save the world and i said yes we can but will we will we means taking action and so now at the end they say together we can together we will and i got <laughs> I got um, seventeen thousand people in Hungary at a large music festival, all standing up and saying together, "We can, together we will save the planet." And it was an amazing feeling. Fabulous. Yeah. So you know, we. But if, trouble is, we've got an awful lot of presidents and uh, corporate leaders who are the business as usual, gaining money, getting companies bigger and bigger, crowding out the little ones, wanting wealth, wanting popularity, wanting fame, whatever it is, not thinking about future generations at all.
1: And it's- well, <laughs> yeah, I want to return to something that you said before. You, you, you were saying that the first uh, order of business is to lift people out of poverty, which as an environmental campaigner, uh, you, you know, might not be most people's first go-to place. And I'm so I'm with the Green Party here in, in New Zealand. And one of the things that we sometimes get criticised for uh, is not stitting, uh, sticking to our knitting. So people say, you know, when we come out and say, actually, we want to lift people out of poverty and we're prepared to increase taxes at the top in order to do that and so on. People say, well, I you know, that's just a socialist idea. I, I want an environmentalist party. So can you can you draw the relationship there?
0: Yeah, I can. I, the reason I left Gombe, where I was so happy out in the forest studying chimpanzees, was in 1986 a big conference, and for the first time by that by then there were people studying chimps in seven different African countries. Um, when I began, it was just me. So we brought them together. And the conference was mainly about uh, how does chimp behavior differ in these different environments or does it differ? But we had a session on conservation and it was a shock because knowing there's deforestation, but the extent of it in all these seven countries and the decreasing numbers of chimpanzees And so I always feel that if you want to talk about something, you need some first-hand experience. So I gathered up a bit of money and I had a a funny little trip around six of these range states uh, with a funny little exhibit, just mainly photographs blown up and tools used by different chimps. So I learned a lot about the problems faced by chimps. But I also learned about the problems faced by so many of the people living in and around chimp habitat and the crippling poverty, the lack of good health and education, degradation of land as their populations grew. And it came to a head. I flew over Tiny Gombe. Gombe is the smallest national park in Tanzania and when I began it was part of this what we call the equatorial forest belt going right across from western East Africa to the west coast more or less unbroken and when I flew over in 1990 I looked down and it was horrified to see just a little island of trees and surrounded right. by completely bare hills more people than the land could support, too poor to buy food from elsewhere, overused, infertile farmland, cutting down trees even on the steep valleys, their desperation to grow more food, there was terrible erosion, streams being silted up. And that's when it hit me. If we don't do something to help these people find other ways of living, uh, we can't even try to save the chimpanzees. So that led to our program, Take Care or Takari, as we call it, which um, it began with twelve villages just around Gombi. Uh, it's grown into a very holistic program. One of its key things is um, microcredit, based on Muhammad Yunus's Grameen Bank. He took me to bangladesh introduced me to the women who for the first time had got little bits of money in their own hand and they cried when they told me what it was like and so we introduced that it's mostly women uh, who take these loans out and the advantage of a loan rather than a grant is that When they pay back, and they almost all do, it's about 90% return, uh, they're proud because it's theirs. They've done it by their work, and they can be proud of it and take ownership and hold their heads high, and also providing as many scholarships as we could to keep girls in school during and after puberty because it's been shown everywhere that as women's education goes up, family size tends to drop, which, which it has to some extent and that program which includes um water management uh, programs and well it's it's just totally holistic and it's now in throughout the whole chimp range in tanzania and it's spreading into six other african countries where jgi works around chimp habitat so
1: and and is it having an effect on the chimp habitats is it is it doing the job of of preserving those habitats
0: that's the point and it, it was said to me when i first started this you know you shouldn't be doing that you should be concentrating on protecting chimps just like you say you said to the green party um as we have helped the people understand that protecting the forest is just as much for their own future because it 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 has all these mitigating effects on climate change and rainfall, clean air, clean water, um, healthy environment, which depends on um, healthy biodiversity. And so the people now understand the, the whole area where chimps live. Almost all the chimps are in village forest reserves, not protected. But now... From each of the 104 villages, uh, volunteers have come to workshops. And even if they can't read or write, they have learned how to use smartphones. They're very proud of this. And they go into their forests and they monitor legally cut trees. They made the decision between them. And uh, so then it gets uploaded into a platform on the clouds. And it's very transparent so the village leaders can see what's happening. The trees, you don't see bare hills when you fly over Gombe anymore. There's massive tree planting. Mostly it's leaving the forest alone, persuading the people to move and farm in different areas in different ways, permaculture again. And uh, the the soil regenerates its amazing seeds. As long as it hasn't been too long uh, cultivated, the seeds re. Uh, germinate and also the roots of some species of trees have germinated so the chimps now have more forest than they had in 1990 and the villagers are beginning to make corridors between isolated chimp groups so it's, it's worked fantastically and that's why we're now trying to you know spread it further and further and it, it doesn't have to be just chimpanzees it can be anything
1: it's incredibly heartwarming to hear you say that because, as you said earlier, most of the news that we see is bad news. Yes. Uh, and you talked about how a lot of young people are dispirited; they're angry; uh, they become apathetic. Um, and I'm, I was actually interested that you that you mentioned ap- apathy, because we have quite low rates of youth voting in New Zealand, as you do see around a lot of the world. Uh, And there's a sort of disdain, I think, that older people have for young people in saying, well, you know, if they really cared, they'd get out and vote. Uh, And I've always had this theory that actually actually apathy is a function of the people actually care, uh, but are so, you know, dispirited that they feel that, participation wouldn't make any difference.
0: Because if you feel that what you're doing is making no difference, then why bother? Mm. So, and, and I'm, I'm always blaming the media. I'm always having a thing when I do press conference. hey, you guys, you know, I know you have to report the bad news. You have to. It's part of your job. But you must give space to the good news because everywhere I go, I meet these incredible people with these amazing projects where landscapes have been turned around from disused coal mines or, or quarries for uh, sand or whatever it is that have been restored and once again support life and nature and animals rescued from the brink of extinction. It, it's very, very You need to share those stories more, to show what can be done, what is being done and what has been done.
1: Can I ask you, you know, New New Zealand is a a set of islands in the South Pacific Ocean. We're a a colonial country um, of about 5 million people and we're also one of the more developed economies, an OECD country, so comparatively quite wealthy to most countries in the world, including Tanzania and the, and the other countries in uh, Africa that you, that you work with. And I'm looking for parallels in other wealthier countries uh, that you've come across, where you've seen the you know, things that are similar to what you've just described around Gombe.
0: Well, I'm going to go back to the Middle East again because um, Abu Dhabi have been going there for quite a number of years. In fact, they've been supporting us and growing roots and shoots across. And what I've seen there is a huge restoration of mangroves um, to try and protect from, from sea level rise. Uh, incredible restoration of animal species that were basically extinct in the wild, um, which uh, various UAE countries have done together. And, you know, gone to see the Arabian oryx that were extinct and seen them back out in the desert. So that's – it it, uh, it doesn't compare with, with New Zealand at all, but it's an interesting uh, perspective of what can be done in a
1: country like that. Um, Has that been done – in the in the same way you know in in tanzania you said that you are working with uh groups of small villages who who have built these very grassroots projects and then they've networked together to create really quite a wide scale change is that the same in abu dhabi it's a it's a sort of a very
0: no it's government uh, basically the government that's done it and uh it was the I can't remember his name, but the sort of founding father sheikh in in Abu Dhabi. He really was an amazing conservationist. I should know his name, but I can't remember it. But anyway, he's the he's he's the head of the whole lot. He's dead now. And um, but you know the other thing about jobs and and restoration and things like that is tourism. And of course, as we've seen, tourism drop off because of the virus. Um, It's had a really damaging effect in many places. I I just read just today, hundreds of elephants killed in the Okubanga Delta. And it's because there's no money to pay the rangers. And so poachers have made the opportunity to take the tusks and of course they sell them on the black market for lots and lots of money. But in other places, it's simply people who've lost their jobs and going out in the forest to kill animals to eat them. So losing the tourism has been terribly, terribly damaging. In one way, uh, tourism is destructive. But in another way, it brings foreign exchange into the country. It gives animals and nature a worth in the eyes of those people who feel everything must be monetized and um, it provides lots of jobs locally for the people, and it it also wakes people up who go from another country and see these, I've met so many who say they've watched elephants or they've looked in the eyes of a gorilla, it's changed their whole life forever. And it's the same with, you know, when they go to the better zoos, the good ones, you've got a good one in Wellington, that's for sure, and again, it turns people on, and they become conservationists. And the zoos are raising money for conservation.
1: One of the things I will take to my grave was uh, I was in Zimbabwe once, and uh, quite late at night, came back to the hotel, and the hotel guard just said, "Oh, just hold, hold where you are, um, because there's a bull elephant just outside your hotel room." <laughs> uh, and 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 then very carefully, just sort of. Walked up and and this enormous creature, uh, uh, using its entire body weight to crush a fully grown tree, and then just to eat it. And it, you know, I don't know. It was maybe two o'clock in the morning, and we were right by the Zambezi, and and it had, and the elephant had come out of the river, uh, and so on. And and it it I, yes, it was an astonishing moment. Those moments are very special, aren't they? Absolutely. Well, you would have had many, many of those uh, in your life, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Very lucky.
0: Those early days with the chimpanzees were just completely unbelievable. I knew those chimpanzees so well. Yeah. And there were the scientists telling me, "You can't have empathy with your subject. You shouldn't give them names. You can't talk about them having personality, mind, or emotion." Well, thanks to the chimps being so like us biologically, as well as Hugo taking films showing how like us they are in behaviour, and all my descriptions, science had to change.
1: Well, I, I I think that you you could say that you have changed the science as a result of those experiences and that work that you did?
0: Well, all I did was interpret the
1: chimpanzees
0: for people. I I was their voice. I was lucky enough to be their
1: voice. You said in an interview in the Washington Post last year that your job is to try and to help people to understand that every one of us makes a difference, and you've talked a little about some of those things that the different organisations have done. What are the differences that people can make? I mean, if you're just talking regular folk, living in the suburbs, trying to raise a couple of kids, holding down a job, what would you say to them?
0: Well, what I say to them is, you know, and I've said it already, make these little choices every day as to what you buy, what you wear, uh, how you interact with people, because you can change somebody's life with an interaction, how you interact with animals. Um, and I talk to them, I tell them about, you know, perhaps eating less meat and I know you must stop
1: eating meat because that doesn't work and people just turn against you and don't listen. Can I just ask you again, just to return to the earlier point about young people, what does a young person need to get involved or to get started on a project? Because a lot of the people who I speak to say, that they, they care a lot about you know forests and oceans, um, marine mammals, birds, but they don't know where to start. And your whole organisation, it seems, turns people into people who are doing
0: things. Yeah, that's what we aim to do. And so, of course, my answer is going to be help us spread roots and shoots like, uh, throughout the school system because it works and i think the reason it works is because we're not it's not top down it's it's first of all the children must understand the problem they have to know without it being too grim and bleak i mean we don't want little children to know hundreds of elephants are being killed that just would be horrible they'd have nightmares but the problems in the area around them are where we concentrate like a stream that's dried up because of clear-cutting further up or something like that. And um, then depending on their age, but if it's a uh, middle school, high school, university, they just discuss these and they discover what are they passionate about? And then they can you know, have access. We've got the internet now, but the Jane Goodall Institute has a network all over, and we put a lot of young people in touch with other young people in other countries. We've got this whole group worldwide now of those who are trying to deal with the problem of plastic, others who are working on trafficking, um, others who are working on water, wasting of water, all, all sorts of things. And so it's very international, but it's also absolutely local. It's doing something, and you see the result of what you do. So, this expression, think globally, act locally, is the wrong way around. Because if you think globally, you're totally depressed. If you act locally on a problem that you and your friends can solve or see your way to solving and involve others, then you see, I did it. And then, oh, but there's other people doing this sort of thing everywhere. Then you dare think globally.
1: What is the one project that you have? come across recently that gives you the most hope or that you found the most inspiring? Oh, yeah,
0: there's so many of them. I mean, there's so many about, you know, just, just in the UK, and say we have a fantastic environmental um, record, but the restoration of the woodlands across certain parts of the UK and the corridors, and, of course, it's a constant battle it's the same sort of battle that you get in your Green Party, a uh, constant battle against developers and conservationists. And I suppose that will continue unless we can create this new green, um, new green way of thinking about things. I don't know, but we've got to try. So I don't know that I can pick on one particular I mean, I read almost every day, if you look in the right places, about an insect that's been saved or a bird that's been restored, or and they're they're all encouraging, they're all heartwarming. And kids planting in Tanzania, one one tiny village, poor as anything along near 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 Gombe. And between them they've planted, I think it's half a million trees, just the kids. And you know, that's that's what they can do, and they're so proud of it.
1: Jane Goodall, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, thank you for um, thank you for inviting me, and I must say I've much enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to Jane for joining me. Do feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament Next week, we'll have something a little bit different, as I will be joined by the legendary music producer, Brian Eno, which will be a great opportunity to explore some of the links between music, art, and politics. See you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.